Hello, I'm Peter Eyes and welcome to Stages. Today, I'm thrilled to be examining the Australian musical as a product that has evolved and developed over the past century. A new book has been released celebrating the history of the Australian musical from the beginning, and I'm delighted to be joined by one of its authors, Peter Wiley Johnston. The Australian musical is a peculiar beast, a hybrid of vaudeville, music hall and the influential Broadway form. It traverses authentic and genuine storytelling whilst continually experimenting with style, structure and content, and always with the presence of a larrikin essence. The history of the Australian musical is vast, from early offerings such as The Bunyip, Chuchin Chow and Collets Inn, to contemporary product like Brand New Day, Muir's Wedding and Fangirls. The Australian musical is a fascinating entertainment and has had a glorious history on local and international stages. It is an entertainment growing from modest beginnings to eventually finding output in the West End and on Broadway, all contributed to from a variety of practitioners exploring a great breadth of subject matter. Preserving and contributing to an Australian musical theatre product continues with the recent publication of The Australian Musical From the Beginning. Co-author Peter Wiley-Johnson joins me to examine the rich legacy of Australian musicals, which is celebrated in this glorious new book. Uh, It's terribly important to have a very, very polished book. Claude Michel Schoenberg said to me 25 years ago, I reminded Nancy because she was on the panel at Ultima at the ABC, it was 94, 95. There was a fantastic, uh, what were they called, like a conference on the Australian musical. And John Frost, Nancy Hayes, Claude Michel Schoenberg was on the panel and a couple of other people whose name, forgive me, whoever they are, I don't remember. It was absolutely wonderful. You know, there were hundreds of people there. David Campbell was sitting next to me. Didn't even know who he was. And, you know. and afterwards, Michel Schoenberg said to me, Look, to write a great musical, you need three things. A great story, by far the most important thing, followed by wonderful music and very good lyrics in that order. Story, story, story. But of course, he was talking about the book, the structure. You know, he spoke about that. It's the structure, the story, the way. And Cameron McIntosh is forever talking about this. Hammerstein, you know... Um, and finding the opportunity. Write the book, of course, as you know, I've said, we've got a lot of musicals and, you know, brilliant structuring. Yeah, finding the opportunity for the characters to sing also, I guess. Well, this is, but this is the book, isn't it? Yeah, this is yeah. where, in that narrative, once you've set the scene, how do you set it? Where do we have the underscoring? Where do we do the transitions? How is it structured? And that's the secret of the entire thing. Assuming, of course, you've got a wonderful story, great music and terrific lyrics, as he, as he said. Yeah. But let's just assume you've got all three. You can still screw up if you don't structure it properly and if you don't get that right. And that's why Broadway's so far ahead mm. because that's what they've been working on since the 1910s, since the well, Princess Theatre and Drawing. Isn't it? the it's musical. the great American art form. Mm. And I think we need to be deferential to that in the sense that we need to say that just as the novel is not an Australian art form, neither is the play, neither is opera. That doesn't mean we can't have Australian versions of those things, and obviously we do, but we also should be a little respectful and mindful of what, of the expertise that's needed to do this at the very top level. So what defines the Australian musical? How is that different to the American musical? Well, I think, to me, it's something that conveys a quintessentially Australian spirit and set of ideas. 
um, and presumably story narrative as well. Sentimental Bloke and Keating, you know, the two most successful commercial musicals of each century, 21st and 20th century, in profit terms, financial terms, of original musicals. Sentimental Bloke, you could hardly be more quintessentially Aussie, going back to 1916. Keating just emerged out of nowhere. What a brilliant idea. They've both got a sense of the larrikinism. That's exactly right. Larrikinism, the underdog. The guy from, you know, downtrodden, sort of breaking through, making good. And that folk hero idea, which I think is, you know, because my brother-in-law's German, he came, he didn't know anything about Keating. He saw the musical in 2008. He'd only been living here for three years. He knew nothing about the political background. With the family went, he said, this is what a great show. It was funny. He could get the humour and get it, even though he knew nothing about the background. And I thought, what a fabulous test of Casey Venero's idea. A good story, yeah. Yeah, a really good story. You know nothing about the subject matter, but you can be totally engaged. And I think that is the acid test, which is why I love going to Broadway and turning up at new Australian musicals and knowing nothing about them. I hate it when people tell me in advance. I always stop listening. I want to turn up and see, like, The Prom I saw on Broadway three months ago. Absolutely fantastic. As I was walking out, I actually met one of the producers at Interval. I ended up having drinks and chatting and so on and so on. There's a movie with Nicole Kidman and... Who was it? Um, not Margot Robbie, somebody else. Meryl Streep. How yes. could I forget? Yeah. <laughs> How could I forget? Meryl, Margot. Shame on me. Yeah. yeah. So Meryl and Nicole are doing the movie. Mm. How fantastic. Some beautiful melodies, which is what I'm a bit of a melody freak. That's my thing. But a very, very good story based on truth. Um, adapted from the reality of this girl out in the Midwest, somewhere in America, a young lesbian, couldn't take her girlfriend to the prom, insisted on doing it. When she turned up, everyone had left and gone somewhere else. How disgusting. So she got on social media and everyone in the village from the nearest 100 kilometres around there, they all turned up and had a party. But they'd done a very clever thing with the structuring of that story and it was absolutely fantastic. And Jack Vietel, I think, is one of the producers of that, certainly a big power behind that musical. And I know a Tish where he you know, he runs in New York, his chair, supports this whole concept of structure, story, structure, story, the book, the book, the book, you know? Mm. And I think we really need to learn better how to do this in Australia. It's the biggest weakness in all the, in all the musicals I've seen and been through. Not all of them are weak at all. I mean, Keating actually works extremely well. But very often that's the biggest weakness to me. A show like Keating, though, I, I guess borrows a lot from our Australian traditions of vaudeville. I agree. Uh, circus. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Tony Sheldon, when he first saw it, said, oh, it's a pub show. And I thought, well, that's absolutely right. The trade saw version, the original version, then developed into a big and run at the Cabaret Festival. Then Neil Armfield did the full-length thing. Mm. But a great example of development from the bottom up, short, getting an audience, finding an audience, developing the story expanding, extending, and using all those techniques, you know? But if it works, do it, and it worked. There's no predicting what's going to uh, to make a musical successful, is there? Well, this, of course, is Sir Cameron again, isn't it? He's yeah. forever saying, look, yeah, yeah, we got it right, got it right, you know, and we know how to do it. And then, of course, he'll next breath say, well, no one knows anything. It's that same old rule. Who would have thought cats could be a success? No, no one would invest, as we know, mm. originally. And um, Andrew Lloyd Webber went ahead and did it. 
phenomenal. You know, I guess that's why um, in the in the early American musical, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein, they, they <clears> had success, and then their musicals become very formulaic. Well, you can say that, but I would argue a bit differently. Yeah, Oklahoma. I've still got on my wall at home above my desk and above the piano. I've got the great quote: "How they used to have to go and do gigs themselves up and down Fifth Avenue, trying to raise the money for Oklahoma. No one would invest." No one would invest. They changed the name the night before. Bang. The longest running musical in the world after Chu Chin Chow, of course. Written by an Australian from Geelong in 1916. Chu Chin Chow ran for five years, 2,238 performances, as opposed to Oklahoma, which was 2,248. But that wasn't until 1948 when it closed. Chu Chin Chow ran until 1921. Oklahoma was also a seminal work and that it used dance to sort of tell a lot of its story. True, true, it? true. Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, Agnes de Mille, of course, yes, yeah. brilliant. But on the point of being formulaic, I mean, yes, you can argue that, and I guess there's a certain truth in that. But on the other hand, as anyone with a good formula would say, when you're on it, stick to it. Yeah. And I think the five great Rodgers and Haberstein musicals prove the point. Yeah. Everything shifts. You can find common threads in each of those musicals. But what lifts them, of course, is the story, the structure, the music, and the lyrics. You know, and I think um, the underscoring, the If I Loved You transition in Carousel, still, for my money, the best in the whole of musical theatre. No one's ever written a better transition than that, from dialogue through underscoring to the song, to the duet. You know? Mm. Sensational. When were you first alerted to the musical and, and fell in love with when the When I was... I'm a very little boy seeing Sound of Music. Is it so, June, June Bronhill? June Bronhill production. It was sensational, of course. Later on um, in the Australian Opera, I met June when I was singing in the Australian Opera as a little boy for several years. Um, quite a star. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. You know, an amazing, amazing talent. Star quality in spades. When she was um, in her very beautiful face in the 60s, which I can still remember, um, the glorious voice, quite marvellous. And star quality in spades on stage. She captured the entire theatre. It just hit you from across the footlights, you know. Incredible. And then she, she starred in another great musical written by an Australian. I wasn't aware Robert and Elizabeth. Absolutely, that's exactly right. Rob Grainer wrote the role of Elizabeth specifically for Jean's voice. And of course, you've got the E flats and the E naturals even, which she sings and it's absolutely stunning. Brilliant. And there's a move I hear in Australia at the moment to produce that next year. Oh, the there is indeed. There is indeed. I can say no more. Did you see it originally? I have seen Rob Elizabeth only once. Right. And that absolutely glorious. When the big CD set of June came out, I grabbed it, and there's a whole stack of Robin Elizabeth on that recording. Yeah. It's the first time I'd heard it for, for decades. Yeah. Absolutely marvellous. And Keith Michelle, another great Australian, of course. Rod McClellan was in that too, also an Australian. Absolutely superb, superb musical. Frank Thring. Frank Thring, of course, in Australia we had Frank Thring, the son of the great entrepreneur back in the 30s who was our great producer. Yes. Who in the 30s, the most avowedly Australian producer of them all, F.W. Thring, Collard Sin and the Cedar Tree, with Mrs. Varney Monk from Sydney. So he commissioned those musicals, didn't he? No, he didn't. No, no, no. Natalie Rosenwax, the great Jewish philanthropist from Sydney, ran a competition in 1931 into 32. The prize, I think, was 110 guineas in the Depression, which was a lot of money, as you would know. And Varney Monk 
He was married to Cyril Mugg, who was the first violin in the Sydney Symphony. Um, he'd been writing songs for years and she wanted to write a musical. She entered, she won second prize at the Island of Pines was the first prize. It's never been seen or heard of again. But Ms Rosenwax um, decided, no, 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 we're doing Collets in. So it was produced at the St James Theatre in Sydney in 1932. And Philip Game, the soon-to-be-forgotten um, governor, who, of course, sacked Jack Lang as the Premier, Paul Keating's great mentor. Um, but Philip Game and Lady Game were at the premiere of Collets in at the St James in 1932. It was, as much as any musical could be in that time, a massive hit. It sold out every single performance in Sydney. Frank Thring heard about it. He invited Varney Mugg to come to Melbourne. He got an orchestra and some superb singers to come and sing. That was the audition of the musical. His wife was there. They listened to it with some friends. And that was it. He grabbed it and produced it at the Princess Theatre, which he had control of at that time for just those few years. Williamson's didn't have the princess. They were furious. Garnet Carroll eventually got it. Garnet Carroll eventually got it. But J.C. Williamson, of course, had her majesties. And so they, within fairly short order, by 1933, were quite worried about all the audience because Gladys Moncrief had made a major success in college in both in Melbourne and Sydney. So J.C. Williamson then commissioned Charles Zouar, a young Melbourneian, to write Blue Mountain Melody, which he did in 1934. And that was produced both in Sydney and Melbourne at Her Majesty's. And it's extraordinary because that was one of the few times that a member of the royal family was present. The Duke and Duchess of Gloucester, would you believe, in 1934, came to the premiere of Blue Mountain Melody at Her Majesty's in Melbourne. So, and Charles Ware, of course, that was the only commission that J.C. Williamson's ever gave. Peter Penny might have told you this already. He knows his history just as well as I do, but um, the only time they commissioned a musical was that that one occasion. And Zouar was extremely talented, and he went off to England a few years later with his first wife, who was an ABC writer called Isabel Sheed, who wrote a whole series of novels very successfully as well, another forgotten Australian. But they moved to England, and he wrote a stack of reviews and musicals for the West End, and was extremely successful, had a career as a full-time composer for the West End. So, amazing. But Varney Monk, going back to her, wrote Collins in 1933, produced in 33, 34 in Melbourne and Sydney. Melbourne, then Sydney, then back to Melbourne for a return season. Then she wrote The Cedar Tree, which is the only Australian musical of that period with an environmental theme. We have dialogue. No, no, we must save the tree. The beautiful cedar tree. How can we destroy a tree? Wow. Absolutely amazing. It's all in the book which I sat and read in the National Library archives years ago. And um, a lovely work. But, of course, Williamson's were fired up. And the only theatre that Thring could find in Sydney was a lousy theatre. And uh, there was, I think, a little white handing. It didn't fly in Sydney, so they closed it down. And within 18 months, Thring died, was dying of cancer. And he was going to film Collinson. He went to England. He recorded some songs. And um, he came back from California in the middle of 1936 and died about two weeks later. And young Frank Thring, his son, gave an interview to the press and said, look, my father's too ill to speak. So Frank Thring, at the age of 10 or 11, gave his first press conference. Wow. Yeah, incredible. What a, what a great loss, a great loss. 
Um, historically, we're going to identify the recruiting officer as the first plague performed in Australia. Ah, oh, yes. Can Still we right I- back. identify the very first homegrown musical? Well, it's a really good question, I think, Peter. The, uh, there's actually a Banjo Patterson show from the 1890s, which I knew about, and so I've got notes on it in a file at home. It was produced in a pub in Sydney, in, I think 1895. Um, but again, it's one of those hybrid works, such as like Australis, which was the big pantomime federation, 1901, in Centennial Park. You've got various forms of hybrid musical works that I'm aware of that when we were writing the book, Peter and I talked about this a lot when I wrote the history, the first part in the book, part one. Um, I said, look, I'm going to make a decision just to begin really with the Bunyip, 1916, because even though that's been classified as a pantomime, you can argue in many ways that it's really a musical. It's got a stack of songs. There are more than 20 songs in the score. It's got a book. It's structured much the same way as a musical of that era. Um, on the other hand, of course, you could look at operettas and um, you could look at Alfred Hill, for example, but we, of course we move into light opera, operetta. Um, and so to find what is actually a, a book musical, I think is a bit tricky and we can argue, but in the book, as, you, as you've probably seen already in the, the Australian musical the book we've done, uh, in that history, I've said the Bunyip, and then um, we've got a couple of other pantomimes of Williamson's. In 1917, Reggie Stone was writing songs for those, but they're not full-scale musicals recognised as book musicals, and FFF is the first attempt really to do that and make it, have it acknowledged as a musical rather than anything else. So so tell me about FFF. First of all, what does FFF stand for? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. <laughs> Amanda Muggleton at Raheen last week when she launched the book in Melbourne, um, suggested fabulous financial failure, <laughs> which was absolutely true. It was a disaster for poor old Clement John de Garris, who was a fabulous sort of one of those entrepreneurial guys of that era, a larger-than-life figure. Um, I think he was, uh, what can you say, um, a big dreamer who'd been terribly successful with his dried fruits business, made tonnes of money and was then persuaded by Hugh D. McIntosh, the producer, to invest some of his own funds in McIntosh's company. And McIntosh would, of course, produce the, the musical all over Australia. Um, it got to Adelaide, Perth, and then to Melbourne at the Tivoli, and then after December 1920 was never seen again. We still don't know what FFF means. Um, there's lots of speculation all over again at the moment. One uh, shudders to think, but anyway, we just don't know. But... What we do know is that Degaris, by 1924, I think it was, um, was in big financial trouble. He'd actually left his wife, first wife, got off with his secretary, which is a bit of the story of FFF, the actual musical, has a similar story, drawn from life, perhaps. Adultery. He had, by then, two or three more daughters with his new wife. And in 1924, he was arrested in New Zealand, wearing a frock and a wig, disguised as a woman, Obviously, very unsuccessfully. <laughs> and I don't think in any way that he was seriously trying to transition. He was simply trying to escape creditors in Melbourne. This didn't work. He came back to Melbourne, managed to get out of all that trouble somehow or other, 
but in 1926 put his head in a gas oven down in Melbourne in Mornington one dreary day in August. And Melbourne in August could be one of the most frightful places, you know, as we know the weather. Yeah. Grim, um, you know, miserable. And so poor old Clem de Garris put his head in the gas oven and killed himself. So that was the end of him. No more musicals. He'd written the book and lyrics in the original story. He'd got it on. But the great thing he did, apart from giving Rachel Stone the chance to write the score, and we've actually got um, the complete book of FFF is in the National Library. Sorry, no, it's in National Archives. That's right, in Canberra. We've got about eight of the songs that were published. They're all in the National Library collection of music. We don't have the other songs still, so we've got a certain amount of the musicals still. But in the audience in Adelaide was Jack Fuster, who'd recently come back from a trip to New York and California, where he went to meet his idol, Irving Berlin. And Jack Fuster was an amazing guy in Adelaide. He'd been publishing songs for several years. He'd been an entertainer as a... Um, one of the troops in the army. He joined the army in 1917 and entertained the troops. But in 1919, after the war, he went to California, then to New York, went to Rag, went to Timpan Alley and was determined to write musicals. So he came back to Adelaide in March 1920 and was quite extraordinary because FFL opened at the Prince of Wales, now Her Majesty's in Great Street, in August 1920, a few months later, there was Fuster and there was a new Australian musical. So he was absolutely fired up. He approached Frederick Mills in Adelaide, who was his buddy from the army, a disabled guy who was very well known as a writer in Adelaide. And Mills wrote the book and some of the lyrics of Yanta Binji, which became the first musical of Jack Fuster in 1921. And as far as we know, it was only ever performed once with Fuster on the piano. He was a multi-talented guy, Jack Fuster, um, in Theberton, in the hall in Theberton. And then possibly at the Minder Homes for charity, because he was later a big supporter of the Minder Homes in Adelaide. But his daughter, Jill, who's still living, she's in her 80s, um, recounted all of this to me many years ago when I was researching for the doctorate and gave me quite a lot of the Fuster papers, which I've now got. And that enabled me to write this history in the PhD originally, then for the book. So, and I've, we've actually got the whole of Yander Binji, thank God. We've got all the songs and the complete book. And I did some of them in the Adelaide Cabaret Festival in 2005, in Fuster and King, which was something I presented, uh, which is now, my God, that's 14 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when I played, I did sing a few of the numbers, two or three of them, I think, but played this marvellous song called Blue Pacific Blues, which is a fabulous piano piece, regardless of the lyric. And I don't think I sang it, I think I just played it, but I would strongly recommend this to every Australian pianist, piano bar person, musical theatre, cabaret. This is a song that should be out there and getting done. It's a fabulous number, which they included in footnotes, their review, Fuster and King in 1930. So Jack Fuster was fired up. In fairly short order, he met a guy called Tom King, terribly good-looking young gay man in Adelaide, who was very good friends with young Bobby Helpman at that stage, who was a little bit younger. And um, 
Tom King was an extremely gifted pianist, very superior level pianist. Um, and he and Fuster collaborated then on five shows, three book musicals and two reviews. So we have there three musicals in Adelaide, Devon, 1926, Juanita, 1929, Dutenia, Song of India in 1931. And as I said yesterday at the launch here, David Spicer produced so beautifully for us. Um, they were the Rogers and Hammerstein of the 1920s in Adelaide. Some beautiful melodies, some terrific lyrics, and very exotic stories written by an amazing woman in Adelaide called Miss Edith Aird. A-I-R-D, Ed, whose great-uncle, I think, was one of the engineers of the Suez Canal. But her dad had come to Australia and married a very young girl from Adelaide. I think they had five children. Edith was the eldest. When her father died in 1917, she exploded onto the literary scene in Adelaide and went to work for the Advertiser newspaper. She wrote a number of plays, all of which were produced. She wrote a couple of novels, um, some non-fiction works, and the book of three Fuster and King musicals. She also appeared on stage in a couple of musicals. Um, she was in Yvonne, but she was also in um, Kenneth Duffield's great work, The Warrior, in 1929. Duffield, of course, was an Adelaide star as well, a composer, lyricist, mostly composer, who'd been successful on the West End in the 1920s and came back to Adelaide and wrote a book musical in Adelaide in 1924 called Hilo. But going back to Fuster and King, um, this is where we get the birth of the musical in Adelaide, driven more than anybody by Jack Fuster. He started his own publishing company and he also had a little stall called the Maple Leaf um, store where he would promote his own songs. It was sort of, you can imagine a tin pan, pan alley of Adelaide in Rundle Street, what's now Rundle Mall. Yeah. There he was, the Maple Leaf Music Store, next to the Maple Leaf Cafe, which of course is where Tom King used to hang out. It was sort of the cafe culture seat of Adelaide. Quite extraordinary, 1921, 2, 3, 4. So Edith Ed turned up there, they all met, and away they went starting to write um, musicals. So Edith wrote extraordinary stories about Adelaide women, or men, in very unusual circumstances. So Yvonne is an heiress from Adelaide with a very wayward boyfriend called Ted, who's always disappearing. And she gets very upset and a genie appears one day in her house up in North Adelaide and says, look, I'll take you to wherever you want to go. She said, all I want to do is find Ted. So they end up initially in Venice. Ted's in the arms of, I think it's Carlotta, in a gondola. And very soon he's um, got rid of Carlotta and reunited with Yvonne. He disappears again. They end up in Burma, where they sing a fabulous number called the Burma Blues. There's an old Hindu man, the Colonel, and the Baroness. And the Baroness, of course, was Edith Ed in the production. And they all say, now listen, you need to go to Japan. That's where he's gone. And the Baroness said, look, I'm sure he really loves you. Go to Japan. And there in the garden at midnight, in the moonlight, Yvonne... Suddenly, as she's praying to Buddha, as a nice Christian girl from Adelaide in 1926 would be doing, yeah. exactly. She's praying to Buddha, please Buddha, bring him back to me. 
and suddenly we hear the beautiful, it's a very beautiful melody, only one star, and of course there he is singing about her, so she imagines at least, and very soon Ted appears, and they waltz through the courtyard at midnight in the moonlight under the cherry blossom, the end. It's an extraordinary amount of repertoire coming out of Australia, and we're not even beyond the 30s. It's completely amazing. Yeah. I was gobsmacked. My least favourite word, but gee, it's a good word. Completely gobsmacked. When I got to Adelaide, it's nearly 20 years ago, started researching all of this. I met Jill Fuster. I discovered that whole world, then came to the Duffield. I was totally stunned, completely stunned. Kenneth Duffield had gone to school in Adelaide. He went, they were very, very rich, the Duffields. Grandfather was in the South Australian Parliament. They owned masses of properties all through South Australia and Queensland. Kenneth went to St. St. Peter's College, the most important school in Adelaide. And he was always writing songs on horseback all over their sheep stations, making up songs. He wrote the St. Peter's College School song in about 1902. Then he went to Cambridge, where would you believe? He kept writing songs for the Footlights Review. He appeared in the Footlights Review. P.G. Woodhouse, who of course, as we know, worked with Jerome Kern on Broadway with Bolton, wrote songs with Kenneth Duffield at Cambridge. My Grassy Corner Girl has a lyric by P.G. Woodhouse and music by Kenneth Duffield. Wow. 1908. Incredible. You're a bit like a music archaeologist, aren't you? Absolutely. Yeah, very much so. But what an incredible history of Australia here. Yeah, yeah. So Duffield got his shows onto the West End for three years, from 1921 to 1923. Flicking through the book, it's extraordinary to find things like uh, the Cheer Up Society. Who were they? Well, that was Frederick Mills. That's exactly right, back in Adelaide. Right. This was the... Mills was actually disabled and was very, I think, had a great consciousness of anyone in that era of people with difficulties in various ways, disabilities of various kinds, war injuries. And the Cheer Up Society was one of those marvellous volunteer groups which went all over the place into all kinds of unusual places, simply there to help people and literally cheer them up musically or with Frederick Mill's quirky stories, which were, by all accounts, extraordinarily funny. I found a terrific... A quote from Frank Thring Senior talking ah. about Collett's Inn in the program. A country which could provide a Melba, a Florence Austral, and many other world famous names should surely possess individuals capable of providing the material for musical productions equal to those from abroad. He was spot on. Well, look, I just love that. When I remember reading that, um, when I first saw the program of Collett's Inn years ago and thought, isn't this absolutely amazing? He was a bloke who was just determined to do everything that he could to uplift Australian culture, to provide opportunities, not only for Australian artists, which J.C. Winnipson was doing, but for writers, composers, and everybody else involved in the creative process. And that's just astonishing. And no one has has matched that record. You know, John Frost has certainly done things. A few people have, but no one's ever done it to the extent that Thring did. Quite extraordinary. A lot of female writers, composers, oh. at this period as well. Um, the Bunyip was written by... Or Ella Ellie. Ella yeah. Ellie, yeah. Quite amazing. Look, you know, Peter, it's amazing. I think the women... I always think in Australia, because I'm... You know, my family goes back a very long way in Australia. My great-grandmother, whom I knew till I was 14 or 15, 
Um, she was, they were very highly educated in my family. There were, and there was never any sense of um, lack of equality because those women had the vote right from the go in South Australia, some of my families from there, the rest of Victoria. And my goodness, they were very aware of their rights. Melbourne was upheld by Australian women as a role model of what an Australian woman could do. Here was a woman who said, listen, I'm going to get to the top. Did that around the world. Was one of the world's most famous women, as we know. Was fabulously wealthy, successful. And said to her husband, listen, mate, my career comes first. And that's what she did. Quite extraordinary. May Bra, who of course was a songwriter, did something very similar. She's 20 years younger than Melbourne, but I think was very um, inspired by Melbourne, also born in Richmond. She said to her husband in 1912, Frederick, I'm going to England now. I'll leave our sons with you. When I'm successful, I make enough money out of songwriting. I'll come back and get you and the boys. And in 1914 in July, just before the war broke out, that's exactly what she did. They sailed back to England. Within two years of going there, Enoch and Sons had signed her. She was making a lot of money as a songwriter. And within 12 months of that, she'd written her first smash hit song, which sold more than a million copies over the next couple of years. I Passed By Your Window, which was actually from a musical which her publishers didn't want her to have produced because it would have tainted her image as a writer of art songs, which is how her, she was welcomed in England. So, quite extraordinary, but, you know, an incredible talent. And she made a very large amount of money and had quite a big fortune. But again, there was an Australian woman who was leading the way in her field. Edith Ed in Adelaide certainly was doing that. And, of course, those, all of them tried to have those shows produced by Williamson's who wouldn't do it. Um, later on, of course, Varney Monk, a woman living in Mosman, married to the violinist from the Sydney Symphony, very much a talent in her own right. She wrote, she wrote Bridge of Our Dreams Come True in 1932 for the opening of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, which was quite a minor hit in those days. There's even a film of it being sung back in 1932. Is that the commercial producers not really wanting to, to touch a lot of the, this material? Is that the cultural cringe, do you think? I think it's the I think it's the culture. Look, it's, it, to me, it's a very simple proposition. It's one that we have right now, which is exactly the same. We've got to be absolutely realistic about this. You know, money speaks. Broadway and West End shows when they're successful, make a huge amount of money. J.C. Williamson, of course, was an American who came here, founded by importing those shows. He could make an enormous fortune. He did so. He then did that for the Tate family and the Talises as well. They all made enormous fortunes. Why break the formula? You're importing shows from overseas. So in those circumstances, it's very much harder for any Australian talent to get up and for any major Australian investment money to go into those local shows. And that's exactly the same now. Well, in the late 50s, we're, we're, they're starting to give people like Lom Tony LaMonda go in the pyjama <clears throat> game and Jill Perryman and Funny Girl. Don't misunderstand me. Australian no. performers had been given goes all the yeah. way through. So when's the Australian But musicals? Australian writers, yeah. not so. When are they starting to get the recognition, though, Australian writers? When are they started to take being taken seriously? Oh, Is I that think Peter Penny's work and Don Batty? 
the 60s? I'd say the only time Australian writers are taken very seriously by the music theatre world in the world as opposed to within Australia is when they get to the West End or or Broadway. Right. So Tim mentioned Eddie Perfect. Eddie Perfect, Tim mentioned Peter Allen, Peter Pinney, um, Craig Christie with Eurobeat. A few people have done that. Yeah. Can we call... I mean, you know, you talk about Peter Allen with Legs Diamond and, yep. and Matilda with Minchin. Yep. Can we call those Australian musicals? I don't call them Australian musicals. I call them half-Australian musicals. Right, <laughs> because yeah. there are Australians in significant creative yeah. roles. It's like having half-brothers or sisters, which I have, I have quite a few. Um, they're family, but they're, but it's not quite the full thing in the same sense because you know, different parentage. So on one side, Australian on one side, English or American on the other. So Peter Allen, as you know, wrote the music and lyrics of Leg Diamond, but Harvey Farstone wrote the book. A lot of those um, early musicals, uh, the, the subject matter is is the gold rush and gold fields and yep. uh, wattle and gum nuts. Uh, oh, to, absolutely. To use a quote from the book. Yes. W- when do they start to mature and become about contemporary issues? Well, that's a really good question. I think... Um, to get away from that Australiana, to explore other subject matter. That's a very good question indeed. I'm just wondering what the... I, I guess... One of the first biggest, biggest times when Australian musicals do that and when producers and investors get behind it is Rasputin. The John English. 1987, which is John English, that's right. And of course, as the um, Dennis Watkins actually said about that musical, he wrote a couple of songs that were added to the score. Um, people criticised that for not being successful, but as Dennis pointed out, it was produced in an enormous theatre. It actually ran um, with quite strong audiences for quite a number of weeks. When you measure that against the small-scale Australian musicals, which we can deem to be successful, such as the Penny Batty musicals, they were produced in very small venues, deliberately, because the Penny Batty production model was always geared to do precisely that. And they realised, of course, Penny and Batty, that the risk had to be measured against the likelihood of big returns in a big theatre. If you took a big theatre, then you were going to be really up against it with investment, money, risk and so on. If you tailored it to smaller theatres, then you could actually continue to be produced. You might even make profits, which they did, and you continue to be in business. Instead of going for these massively expensive one-off productions, where there's a great big financial loss, and everybody gets upset, and then no one's produced again which is what happened in a number of cases, you know, with very unfortunate results. People lost a great deal of money, despite the fact there was plenty of talent consent, and that's Manning, Clark, Eureka, and Rasputin would be three examples of that. You know, so I think we have difficulties. To go back to your question about exotic stories, I think it's when people start to say, look, why does it have to be all about Australia? Let's look outside of Australia, which is fine because, after all, American and English writers... You know, look outside of, of their own country. I always argue, and I'm having this argument with people, is found with the opera, an English musical. It's in Paris, isn't it? It's a French story. Mm. You know, Gaston LaRue was French. So it's, and by the same token, is My Fair Lady an American musical or an English musical? Or maybe it's Austrian, because Frederick Lowe was Austrian. Yep. Alan J. Lerner was American. 
even though they had better command of English than just about anybody else on earth in any country. And so once you start running that argument, where do you go with it? You know, it's quite a th- an odd argument in the end. But I think, on the other hand, you could take Carousel, where Rogers and Hammerstein brilliantly took Molnar, you know, they, from the original Lilium from Hungary, yep. and transposed it to New England. An incredibly successful uh, move, you know, of location. So the story's adapted to, a, to an American setting, which was extremely clever and very successful, as we know. What about Indigenous content? When do we start celebrating that? Ah, well, that's a very good question. Well, the first time, that that's an easy thing to answer in one sense. The first reference to Indigenous um, anything, an Indigenous voice be expressed loud and clear is when one of the Aboriginal characters in Yantabinji in 1921 in Jack Fuster's book asked, he's the cook, the Aboriginal cook, in the sheep station where the actor's troop is stranded during a flood. That's the setup for the story in Yantabinji. Right. A theatrical troop is stranded on a sheep station during a flood in the outback. And the Aboriginal cook, his name is Onion, is quite an important character in that musical. And he says to the other guy, so, hey, do you support the white Australia policy or not? And it's very sharply critical of that policy. And perhaps, of course, that's why after the first performance, if people in Adelaide went to see it maybe as a backers audition, if there was such a thing in those days in Australia, maybe some people there felt uncomfortable because Jack Fuster was an enormous supporter of the Indigenous communities of South Australia. And there's massive evidence of that in the Fuster and King archive in the, the South Australian Performing Arts Collection. In the festival set, scrapbook after scrapbook, photographs of him embraced by young Aboriginal children, surrounded by Aboriginal families. He did radio broadcasts about this in 1927-28, the scripts of which are still there, demanding to know why there wasn't equality back then. He was quite a radical character in that sense. And then, of course, those great celebrations like Brand New Day, I guess. It takes another, what, 70 years before we get an authentic Indigenous voice. We do have the so-called corroboree scene in Collett's Inn in 1932. And Mrs Varney Monk went up to the Blue Mountains to Kayama and stayed with her friend up there. And they met an Indigenous woman there who was a leader... Um, one of the elders of her tribe. And in those days, she was called the Queen of the Illawarra tribe, so-called. Not their Indigenous name, of course. But Vardy Monk transcribed Queen Rosie singing one of their... It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful tune um, in 9-8 time, which in the Frank Spring production was transferred and um, rewritten into conventional waltz time 3-4. But um, in the original college in that music is there in a more authentic version. And there's a corroboree scene. That happens in the home and Eddie Samuels musical in 1950 in Melbourne and Sydney as well. That opened in Melbourne. And um, Eddie Samuels, of course, was the most interesting character, very wealthy chemist from Sydney who'd written several musicals, published songs, had reviews on stage in mainstream theatre in the 20s in Sydney. And um, a very interesting man. 
And interestingly enough, he tells in his autobiography, copies of which are in the National Library, how one afternoon when he was still writing The Hireman down in Melbourne, when it was in production, he was doing rewrites, he wanted to get this Aboriginal corroboree scene, but he, he wasn't right somehow. So he tells the story of how he was wandering down on the banks of the Yarra one afternoon and happened to run to this very young bloke who was an Indigenous man down on the Yarra bank and they came to talking and one thing led to another and in the end that guy, his name was Ted Mullet, ended up in the show himself. He became the advisor to the production and then oversaw the corroboree scene in The Hireman which was produced in Melbourne in 1950-51, then in Sydney, then in Brisbane. So it actually made samples a lot of money. So we do have those um, versions of Indigenous Australia in there, but we don't have the true Indigenous voice till brand new day, of course, in 1990. And quickly followed by the Sunshine Club. Precisely, but Corrugation Road. Corrugation, Corrugation Road. Road in between Jimmy Child's next musical in 1996. That's right. Which is about mental health was much more um, a darker story, but, you know, really, um, I think, um, sad, sorrowful story, you know, about mental health as a result of abuse, which he suffered a lot as a young man. Uh, I've got a quote here from uh, John Milson, the d- director, ah. about Nick Enright. Nick always writes about ordinary Australians with wit, humanity and truth never making hayseeds or yobbos of them. Secondly, Nick's long love affair with musical theatre has produced a true celebration of the Australian spirit. Nick Enright has contributed many musicals, hasn't he, to the repertoire? He certainly has. Yeah. Well, I was very um, honoured to be asked to put to write the Nick Enright songbook by the Enright Estate, which must be, golly, 10 years ago or so now, which was published by Currency in 2014 or 15, but... There are 50 songs from Nick's musicals in that book. And, um, of course, that meant, as I'd done with the PhD, but even more, that I went to all Nick's archive in ADFA. And I never met him. I spoke to him once on the phone. But what an extraordinary talent and what an extraordinary contribution. And more than anybody, I mean, the closest we have to Thring, in another way, is Enright, because he was so avowedly Australian, he was determined to capture that culture, to produce it, and not only in musical theatres, you know, in several other contexts as well, but his musicals, of course, really go right through a whole series of things with On the Wallaby, um, we've got Mary Bryant, you know. Um, Venetian Twins, a very clever Australianisation from God only, you know. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful work. And I think, and of course, he, with Miracle City, shifts out of Australia, you know, which is always risky, I think, for an Australian writer because we shift gears a lot. But most of his other work, and of course Boy From Oz, where he ended up with the book and the Tony nomination, as we know, um, really hit the heights massively. And that became the biggest grossing Australian musical of the 20th century um, without an original score, as we know, jukebox. But, you know, wonderful, wonderful work. So Nick actually got to the top, you know, in that sense of the field, but a brilliant contribution, I'd say, you know. And no one else has really done it the way he did it. And um, achieving that, getting to Broadway with Boy From Us was just quite extraordinary. And um, I must say, 
The Father I Dream, from his final musical, The Good Fight. Beautiful, beautiful song, which uh, was performed at the launch of the Enright Songbook. You know, it just reminded me again, with the final work, um, which went, got into New York later on. Um, I know it was produced over there later on. Um, here he was back, you know, writing about Australia, and Les Darcy, you know, lovely, lovely, lovely work. A beautiful show. I saw that at Whopper. Uh, oh, did a, you? A reading of oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. saw that one. Yes, yes well. extraordinary. And, and yeah. a great score by David King. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. you know, David's done marvellous work. And, of course, we were saying earlier with Mary Bryant, which, of course, was produced in a fantastic production by Magnormous, I think, in 2005 in Melbourne. I went to see it three times. Wow. It was just fabulous. And he had a marvellous cast. And I thought this one could just transfer. There'd be a commercial producer... They could pick up that production and move. It was beautifully designed, directed, marvellous cast. But a great story. A gl- Gets back to story, doesn't it? Fantastic story. Yeah, yeah. But what a beautiful... Who would believe it? What a beautiful score. Yeah. And, and, you know, marvellous lyrics. And a really good book. It just worked. Yeah. You know? So, in my top ten of Australian musicals, from my personal point of view, that's right up the top there. So there's other contemporary contributors. Uh, Reg Livermore, I guess, with things like Lassiter and... Uh, well... You've got to go back to the very brave souls who really, you know, led the way. And, of course, Nick Enright comes a bit later, but Reg Livermore, I mean, really and truly, you know, how incredible. There he is, and he just keeps on doing it. You've know, got West of the Blackstone, Ned Kelly. Extraordinary school. Big sister. They're absolutely amazing. And my friend Patricia Patel, Patricia Walsh, she's in Melbourne now, um, cousin of Mark Watt. She saw Ned Kelly at the Festival Theatre in Adelaide in the original production. And she absolutely, she rang, me, she rang up and said, you've got to come over. And I couldn't get there. I was extremely annoyed. I was in uni at the time. It's absolutely fantastic. She just loved it. And, of course, he had one poisonous review over there. Natasha Stott Despoir's mother was the critic. And... Various factors. And, of course, I think now Reach has given permission to David Spicer so it can be produced again, which it's being... I think it's now in, you know, productions now, but for a long time he wouldn't let it be done again. But, you know, he just kept coming back and doing it and determined to contribute. And some fantastic work, but a very, very, very tough road. Um, I remember seeing a production of Seven Little Australians by David Reed, ah. which I thought was a beautiful score. I quite agree with you. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've always thought that was one of the loveliest scores that we have in Australian musical theatre. Mm. And in Melbourne, that was a very big success. Ran for months and months. And people, you know, I can remember people talking about this all the time. Family show, everybody was going to see it at the comedy. I've a great song about the Parramatta River. Yeah. That Yes, well, I do remember that. Yes, yes, I do. Yeah. But... I've got some of those songs on recording, but lovely, lovely score again. But that was David's biggest success. And, of course, Favourite Son, his follow-up show, didn't fly. But he kept on writing as well. Just kept at it and at it and at it. Around the same time I saw Bad Boy Johnny, Daniel Ebeneri, is that... Which I also saw. Could we call that an Australian musical? Well, we sort of do and we sort of don't. Again, it's hybrid. Very, very... Yes, Peter and I argued about this when we were writing the book... Should this be in the A to Z, in the 324, or not? And I remember going to see it at the time. 
And of course, I didn't see Russell Crowe, who was in the original workshop production. But I remember thinking, this is completely outrageous. This is a really, you know, I, I must say I really liked it, but incredibly subversive attack on the Catholic Church. Um, and really edgy and just fantastic. But um, so in the end, it's in, you know, we've got it there. And Peter Stannard. Oh, well. Writing well, a musical like Rosie, 50, 50 years, years later. His... I know, I know. <laughs> well, Peter and I spoke on the phone. He was marvellous when I was doing the PhD many years ago now. I rang him in Sydney. He said, look, just call me whenever you want to. And I did many times and was to ch- check things and check the facts and all of that. And um, again, pioneer, pioneering work. I didn't see Lola Montez, but one of my cousins by marriage was in it, in the original production, and um, friends of mine saw it. And I used to hear about it growing up all the time. People still talked about it, you know. And I've got the recording, I used to listen to it. That had the minor hit, Be My Saturday. You know, you've got lovely, lovely stuff. And this, of course, was again proving to the local audiences that when something got picked up, it could really register. And there would be an audience for productions like that. Very bold. And from a contemporary uh, vantage point too, you know, all those great women who have contributed as directors and, oh. and writers like, uh, you know, Robin Nevin and Robin Archer and um, Gail Edwards and performers like Geraldine Turner and Nancy oh. Hayes. Well, there's just a stellar group of ladies there. They're just amazing. And I think when you look at Robin Nevin, I mean, Robin Nevin commissioned some terribly important work, I think, Sunshine Club, John Rogers and Wesley Enoch. And when she came down to Sydney Theatre Company, Robin Nevin also produced it again. And I met someone yesterday who saw that production and we were saying, well, why hasn't this come back? As so often happens with Australian musicals. They come, they go. She brought back Summer Rain again. Um, Robin Archer, we talked about a lot, but we agreed, look, she's such an important writer that she had to be in the book. Someone said, oh, no, you can't have one woman chose. And we said, well, sorry. You know, we're disagreeing with you. We're going to put in a couple of them. Absolutely. Because of how important they are. Yeah. And after all, let's just remember that Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote Song and Dance. Yes. Tell me on a Sunday. Tell me on a Sunday. So, look, sorry, we've just blown you out of the water. Bad luck. A one-person musical is absolutely fine. So you've lost the argument. Robin Archer's in. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So where where does our future lie? Um, who who are the young guns who are writing now who can steer us through this century? With well, that's a really good question. I think um, it's a funny thing, you know. We've got several. Well, there are really a couple of different ways of going about it. I think Brian and Frank down in Melbourne, um, Dean and Matthew. Starting with things like Prodigal Sign. Yeah, that's right. Marvellous work, you know, yeah. virgins. And, of course, we've got my brilliant career at the moment. Of course, we've got The Dressmaker with, um, as well. With James Miller and With Peter James Wright, and Peter, that's right. Yeah. With, you know, the other big duo. We've got those writers. And I know Matthew and Dean in an interview, I think I've quoted that in a book, talking about the need to stay, to write for Australia, in Australia. Don't get ahead of yourself. There's a big audience here if we tap into it. As Casey Benero proved with Keating, when you hit the spot, you can do really well. A show can make lots of money 
everybody's successful, there's a big commercial thing there, as there was with Katie. And so that could certainly work. On the other hand, of course, some writers want to aim for Broadway. In the other sense, to continue that strand of creativity, which was pioneered by Oscar Ash, because Chich and Chow went to the West End, but also to Broadway, Peter Allen and some other Australians who've got there, and no more so than Eddie Perfect right now with Beetlejuice, obviously, because there, that's Australians testing themselves against the rest of the world as we do in sport, and we never hear the end of it in sport. And the Aussie tradition is, hey, look, we can do just as well as anywhere else in the world, so let's go and do it in the major venue in the world and see if we can do it. Well, a couple of Australians have done it really well just recently. So I think... You've got really the two traditions there, and I don't see why we can't do both. And let's hope we get some more scores from Kate miller Heidke. Well, absolutely right. Beautiful score with Mirror's Wedding. Yeah. And um, uh, Eve Blake, a great new voice with uh, Fangirls. I know about Eve. That's exactly right. Yes, yes. One of my friends sent me the program from Sydney just a few weeks ago. She went to see it. was talking about that a lot. And um, I think there's there's the big pool of talent at the moment. Um, Joanna Weinberg's work I love Um, there are several others but I think again it's encouragement it's getting the right direction and getting the right advice and listening to the right advice and the right people it's a terribly hard call and those great contributions with David Mitchell and Mal Morrow and John Michael Hausen with those jukebox musicals uh, Dusty and Shout they've proved it extremely well haven't they Dream Lovers sold out the Arts Centre in Melbourne got more um, support than any other musicals ever got. That's what they were told down there. Fantastic show. Beautifully done. Well constructed. But those boys know how to write a musical, how to construct it. Make it work for the theatre. Peter, do you have a favourite Australian musical? (laughs) (laughs) Which one of your babies? Oh, God. Look, I'm such a sentimentalist. I must admit, I do love Mary Bride. That's one of my favourites. It really is... um, Lovely, lovely, lovely music. I love a bunch of rat bags. When I was on the ABC recently being interviewed, Michael Cathcart played for but I could see he was sitting there going, oh, it's, it's, you know, very much of its day. I said, look, I know all that. But as a beautifully constructed, it's really a critique of the social values of the 60s and the narrow-mindedness of the 60s. And it's a great way of reminding everyone, look, that's what we used to be like. Let's not go back to that. And I think that's a really important message. And for me, it still always hits me when I hear about your rat bags again. It still hits me like that. It's really, really good. Um, Hello, Helos, Kenneth Duffield's musical from 1924. There's a fantastic song called Hello, Helo. And it's about a woman being driven nuts by the telephone, which never stops ringing. Because in 1924, wealthy people around Australia were getting phones. This woman's going completely nuts because the phone never stops ringing. And then she throws the phone at the wall. She's screaming, leave me alone. And I thought if ever there was a great song for cabaret these days to bring back to life again, it's how Kenneth Duffield's Hello Hilo from 1924 about being driven mad by the sound of the telephone. Sounds like there's a great lot of repertoire to be mined I think by there contemporary is, artists. Those yeah. 1920 shows have got some really quirky, fabulous humour. And it's more than the sentiment, it's, it's the humour and the quirkiness of it, which I love. 
and some scientists of various developments, which are very cool as well. Well, thank you for giving us this magnificent book, co-authored oh. with Peter Penny. I mean, I think it's going to be the reference book for the next uh, n- number of decades, I imagine. Oh, well, thank I mean, you it's, very a, much. it's a great compilation and, and, and record of history. It's a delicious book, so... Thanks, Peter. Yeah. Well, Peter, I've got to say, was the great collaborator of my life. He was absolutely marvellous over my God, 15 more years now, 20 years, getting on for 20 years, since we met. He's just absolutely marvellous, marvellous to work with and we could talk things through and he has such a depth of knowledge. And, you know, it was marvellous to talk to someone like that at such length in, for so long. Then to have the great arguments and to tease it all out together. Yeah. Fabulous. Well, it's been wonderful accessing your incredible knowledge. Um, well, it's Peter, a great, great love of mine as yeah. well, the musical. So um, yeah. it's been fascinating to learn about it from an Australian perspective. Oh, that's very kind. It's marvellous to meet you and Peter. To keep the flame alive as you're doing, thank you very much. Because every time someone does this, I think we're creating things which, you know, we hope would go on and be of some help to anyone in the future, particularly, which is what it's all about. Preserving history. I think it's terribly important. And I think the other thing of that book is... You know, do we want another Ned Kelly musical? We've had 11 already. Do we want another Eureka musical? We've been seven or eight. If we're going to have one, let's not rewrite what's come before. Let's do a new take on that story, if we're going to do that story again. Or what else can we do? Let's look at the things that we need to do for the future that are new. You know, The Dressmaker, I think, was what a fabulous idea. What an incredible film. What a great idea for a musical. So fingers crossed we'll see something fabulous there. Classics, my brilliant career, again. You know, let's just hope that these things fly really high because we've got the talent, but we need the structure, the structure and the literary quality. And my last word on this bit would be, as Oscar Hammerstein said, not too many words in the book. For a musical, brevity is the soul of wit. The Australian musical From the Beginning is a delicious book, documenting our vibrant musical theatre heritage and the homegrown product constructed from great practitioners like Peter Pinney, Eve Blake, Nick Enright, Terence Clark, Gail Edwards, Max Lambert, Geraldine Turner, James Miller, Nancy Hayes, Peter Rutherford and Robin Archer, just to name a few. It's recently been released and is available from all good booksellers. You've been listening to episode 106 of The Stages Podcast. There are so many more episodes you can access. I've talked to everyone from directors to dancers to drag queens, from producers to playwrights and performers. It's all in the archive. Look out for episodes with Caroline O'Connor, Geraldine Turner, Kevin Jackson, Tony Lamont, Tony Sheldon, Gail Edwards, Tommy Murphy, Andrew McFarlane and Kate Gore. Far too many to mention here, so find the podcast in iTunes and Spotify or do a search for Stages with Peter Eyes on our hosting platform, Wooshka. Thanks again for listening. I'm Peter Eyes and this has been Stages. See you later.